Welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Hey, and welcome to episode 22 of The Near Memo. Uh, You are hearing from David Mim, not the typical host of this podcast. Our fearless our leader, leader fearless our esteemed, esteemed leader. leader, Greg Sterling, decided to take a vacation, of all things, on 4th of July weekend. So Mike and I are stuck uh, manning this uh, usually three-legged stool with only two legs. Um, but fear not, I have two stories that I'm going to talk about this week. And Mike's story is fairly detailed, so I think we'll be able to fill a, a reasonable amount of time with our discussion here. So Sounds good. Mike, before off. we get started, how, how's your week been? My week has been good. I'm recovering from a back strain. I got a little aggressive in my mountain bike riding with my new mountain bike, and I sort of pulled my lower back. So I'm I'm recovering from that. I'm still mountain bike riding. Found a great route by my house. Nice. It's like, you know, up high along a ridge, get to watch the sunsets, see two valleys. It's really quite spectacular. It seems so, like an injury that was worth the worth the effort of, of, of accumulating. Yeah, and so, it wasn't even yeah. like a serious, it wasn't like a fall off injury. It's just like turn around, look at my sister behind me who I convinced <laughs> to come. Right. And then when it, that rapid movement did it, somehow, right. I don't know. Okay. As long as I keep looking straight ahead, I'm fine. So Good. I'll keep riding. Good. Happy to hear that. And we're, we're very happy that the uh, heat dome has passed here in Portland. It was a really awful weekend last weekend yeah. and into Monday. Um, so hope we don't have to go through that again anytime soon. It was apparently a once in a thousand year event. Uh, and uh, I hope it's not a once in a decade event. So I hope it's not once in a more often than that. Event, no, I know. For sure. Yeah. Again, terrible. All right. Well, with that, we will we'll move on to the story. So there are a couple of items this week. Uh, I'll start with the big one, at least to me, which was Facebook's release of Bulletin, um, Bulletin.com. Ironically enough, one of the no, one of the names that I was considering for tidings uh, back before I started it four or five years ago, uh, I didn't have quite the cash that I'm sure Facebook shelled out for such a such a prominent uh, word, single word um, domain. But they've done a nice job, I think, with the execution, just based on on what's out there right now. So it's essentially a, a newsletter product that. Uh, runs on Facebook's sort of infrastructure. And uh, at least based on what I was able to see on on the public site, uh, somehow weaves in Facebook comments uh, into the the newsletter product. So it lets you publish, uh, grow an audience, uh, and engage your audience kind of all on the Facebook ecosystem. And this has been rumored to be, you know, coming, coming out for quite a while. Um, even back uh, shortly after, I think the, the Twitter announcement of, of acquiring review R E V U E, uh, Facebook was rumored to be already working on this product comes on the heels of a lot of, go ahead, Mike. Oh, well, I was just curious. Obviously it's Facebook's ecosystem. So the big question for me is who owns the customer relationship? Right. Exactly. Uh, which is always the question with any of these platform products, uh, for sure. I was going to say, um, just really quickly though, that the comes on the heels of a lot of, um, uh, angst. There's a, probably a German word, better German word for it, but around Substack and it's, uh, sort of conflict of interest around promoting certain authors and paying authors advances and all that. But it strikes me that, uh, you know, that both Facebook with bulletin and Twitter, uh, with review are actually provide and and actually I should also mention link LinkedIn's newsletter product uh, operates in a very similar manner um, that running your newsletter on a major media platform where commentary is driven from that 
social platform and the outcome of that commentary can help your newsletter perform better in organic feeds on each platform, right? So if you think about how Facebook's algorithm, newsfeed algorithm works, right? The more engagement, the more comments a given thing gets, uh, even if it's from a, a business or a brand, the more likely that is to show up in uh, the feeds of people who are following that business or brand. How does that work uh, with a paid product? What do you mean with a paid product? Well, um, this, if you're getting a lot of comments on your newsletter and your newsletter's subscription-based, Right. May, remains to be seen, but I have to imagine that active newsletters uh, are going to get additional visibility on Facebook in the same way that an active newsletter will get additional uh, visibility on Twitter through review. And LinkedIn oper op operates much the same way with its newsletter, although it's not a paid product, where I, I am now seeing newsletters popping up more and more frequently um, you know, in my feed, and, the, and certainly my inbox is, is full of them these days. So... Maybe they've identified me as a heavy newsletter user, uh, and that's why they're showing showing all these things to me. But it strikes me that there's a there's a built-in advantage, um, despite the audience question that you just brought up. Of okay, well, who actually owns that audience? Um, it, it strikes me that there is a built-in advantage to operating a newsletter now on a social platform, and uh, provides a, a pretty significant reason to at least consider it as an alternative to Substack or what we're using for our own website at Near Media, which is Ghost. So. Uh, I just thought it's interesting, seems to be pretty well executed product uh, and definitely something to pay attention to. I don't think it's going to be a sort of flash in the pan uh, for Facebook like so many of their offerings are. So certainly it would seem that newsletter authors then become primary candidates to buy targeted advertising on Facebook. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I could see how uh, Facebook at least, benefits from that and how. They yeah. So at least at least how they've rolled it out, it's for individual newsletter publishers. So like Malcolm Gladwell or Aaron Andrews, who's a sports personality, and they had a, um, a scientist on there as well. So they're sort of individual figures as opposed to a media company running a, a newsletter that might be used to buying ads or whatever to get to get subscribers. So and what's the their cut if you charge? Uh, I didn't get that far into the details, <laughs> but um, I was I was looking at it primarily as a um, just a, a well ex I just think a, a well executed newsletter consumer experience that has the potential to get additional visibility for its its uh, newsletter right. creators, which would so. be a really nice flywheel, right? If you yeah. get engagement and the engagement begets more engagement, yep. that's certainly a very nice flywheel. I'm curious, I can't quite get through my head how that would work with a paid newsletter mm -hmm. uh, other than advertising. Um, but which to me is where the rubber is going to meet the road in this. Which we'll but, see. And I'm sure yeah. Zuck and others have an idea of exactly how that's going to work, but yeah. uh, not obvious to me at the moment. So well, uh, my second my second item, if I can just squeeze it so in quickly, you, it's not you, nearly you as long. Oh. Quickly, but let me okay. ask you this. If you were going to start a newsletter today, would you do it there? Uh, I would probably run a newsletter on multiple platforms and it would and LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook would all be three platforms I would run it on. Perfect. And it's probably something we should consider for near media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, all, right. all right. So I'm, I'm going to move on to our second story, which is also mine this week covering for Greg. Uh, Mike Boland from uh, LSA, now Locality, uh, had a really interesting piece, uh, which was a, a detailed look on a business insider story that Shopify is at least considering running um, a, an ad network essentially uh, as, par as one of its latest offerings. And I, if, I'm, if I read it properly, seems like Shopify is going to be um, 
any Shopify store essentially is going to be collecting data about a given user that Shopify will make available to other Shopify stores to run uh, targeted campaigns on Google and Facebook. So they may not be, um, it's unlikely that Shopify is going to be giving out the email address of a particular user to uh, another store to run ads to. But, but they're probably able look alike. They're exactly they're able to gather their own lookalike data and set and put ads on Google and Facebook that match those characteristics, uh, which I think is a really smart play. And and as Mike Bolin pointed out, um, you know, it's something that gives them a, a another sort of pro SMB pro individual merchant uh, marketing feather versus Amazon, uh, which which seems like a strong you know one of a number of product rollouts that they've um, been, been going with that, that are trying to position themselves more directly against Amazon in the sort of SMB uh, seller marketplace. So I thought so, it was an interesting, interesting concept. And um, I you know, haven't seen any visuals of it actually being executed, but certainly has potential given the number of merchants that are now on Shopify and probably the aggregate number of, of uh, consumers who are checking out on Shopify stores. So essentially, the idea is to leverage the knowledge about the aggregate consumer base to help individuals do better ad campaigns on Facebook and Google. Correct. So the yep. outcome hopefully will benefit the individual as opposed to Amazon, where there's intrinsic conflict of interest because they're wanting you to, that small business to spend money on Amazon's platform to advertise to even be seen. Right. So exactly. it's money. So interesting. So those are, see, I mean, they're basically, this, is it something they're going to charge for or something that's going to be? I didn't bundled? see that mentioned in this. I, I don't know if it's going to, I mean, clearly, I don't think Shopify is going to front the cost of the Google and Facebook ads, but I don't no. know if the, if the, the product itself is going to be included as part of Shopify's native features or not. Right. Uh, I believe their email product is free, or at least it what there was a, a long free initial offering, um, the native Shopify email product. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's sort of a native Shopify ad product where you're only paying the cost of the, uh, of the ads themselves. Hmm. Cool. All right. Over to On me. to you. That's it. So there now was we're, now we're into a much more detailed discussion, right. but, so which there was may a not very, be. Well, I think it's of interest to everybody in the market. For sure. Absolutely. It takes a long time to get to the punchline, for which I apologize, but I'm known for that style. So uh, bear with me. Obscure Supreme Court case early June uh, on, that looked at uh, called Van Buren, in which a cop was charged with accessing licensing data inappropriately, and they used the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Now, the problem with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is terms like unauthorized access or exceeds unauthorized access or exceeds authorized access have never been defined. So this is really the first case for the Supreme Court. And they threw out his, he basically, the FBI set up a sting to get this cop through a gangster to look up license plate information or licensing information for a prostitute, whatever. And the, he had access to this information. He just was using it improperly. And they declared that the, that case would be thrown out or any charges based on the Computer Fraud Abuse Act were thrown out. So as a result of that, though, LinkedIn via and Microsoft requested that the Supreme Court throw out the ninth court's decision that allowed 
Haiq to scrape LinkedIn's data because they want to retry that. So essentially, in 2019, the Ninth Court determined that that it was okay to scrape public data because it was you had you were already authorized to see it. So there was nothing, no unauthorized access. There wasn't any, right, and no distinction between a human being and a computer accessing public information. That's yeah. correct. But the question that this raised is whether LinkedIn telling IQ, sending them a cease and desist order and attempting to create barriers to the bots and having a terms of service is enough to uh, create unauthorized access. So it's a slightly different area of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that was looked at. Now, the reason this is important, at least in the marketing world, is that virtually every, at least in the review space particularly, there isn't a review company in the world that's helping businesses understand reviews that isn't doing scraping either themselves or buying scraped data from one of the data providers like ASG, my previous employer, or somebody else. Um, and so, and, and virtually every report that we looked at, you know, that you look at ranking and all these other things are all based on scraped data. And LinkedIn is Microsoft, and they're looking to put a stake in the ground that says that it's inappropriate to scrape data when it's against terms of service, and they've attempted to put technical barriers in place, and they've sent a cease and desist order. Now, if it requires all three things, it means that scraping might still happen by the lower level, but it puts at risk many aspects of marketing ecosystem. And I think that the Haiku LinkedIn case is one that is worth following, that I've been following for two years, because there's never been a decision whether it's legal to scrape public data or not. Um, and so everybody does it. Google basically doesn't discourage it. If your volume gets too high with Google, they'll put in place some IP blocks and they're pretty good at it from what I understand. Um, if you get too much volume, but they tolerate it. I don't know, you know, who else uses scraping? Who else gets scraped? Obviously all the review sites, but what other marketing platforms need scraping besides ranking and, and reviews? Um, I mean, uh, Ads get scraped all the time, right? SEMrush right. has an entire uh, ecosystem um, product right. built built around scraping Google ads and estimating right. costs and all of that stuff. So, I mean, it feels like, uh, agree that like there's a, um, it, it, it has the potential for major implications for a lot of MarTech and ad tech tools. Um, I think my question, not that I expect you to answer it, but a, a, a question I have for the universe is, the extent to which some of these ongoing uh, antitrust cases will impact um, how much data these big tech companies are required to share with competitors in order to maintain a healthy ecosystem. It uh, would so be ironic if Yelp were required to share public review data. Right, exactly. Um, and at what level, you know, does, is, is revenue the, the sort of threshold that... Um, that kicks in when companies are, are required to share or not? Uh, is every company required to share um, a, any publicly accessible data with any other company? Um, I think I do think that it's a it's a viable way for the DOJ to ensure a more healthy uh, eco product ecosystem uh, is to force some of these larger tech companies to uh, share more of the data or um, allow allow users essentially to, to share that data across multiple products. So although you run this risk, 
much like that happened in Europe, where all the big companies are thus favored. For example, let's take Yelp, which currently requires a an agreement that costs at least $25,000 a month to get access to copyright information, i.e. a review that they don't own. And as part of that agreement, you have to agree not to solicit reviews at Google or Facebook or Yelp for 25, you have to pay them $25,000. Right. I forgot so, the police, the policeman of the internet m- mindset. Right. Yeah. So let's say that that becomes the only way to, that they're made to make this publicly available, but they can charge for it. Then all of a sudden smaller and startup companies can't access that, that public information that they don't own the, that Yelp doesn't own the copyright to. And it would, it, it, it could have egregious outcomes if implemented improperly in terms of limiting the ability of, for creative uses of data that should be part and parcel of what the internet's all about. But we'll see. Agreed. So we'll have to see how that case turns out. And um, do you, who do you subscribe to for these legal updates? It feels like you're, this is a regular um, recurring topic here on the near memo. You, you know, I, I just, I, oh, uh, one is uh, Eric Goldman, but he didn't talk mm-hmm. about this one yet. Um, and then I subscribed to the FTC feed, which is very interesting. And they just laid down yesterday a whole new set of uh, sort of put stakes in the ground around enforcement and, and antitrust that been a long time coming that will, again, allow them to look at issues of competitive harm that they haven't mm-hmm. been able to look at before. Um, and I can't remember where this one popped up, but. Uh, well, know, I, I, I'm sure Goldman will cover this at some point some when it point, gets retried. Yes. So, so yeah. yeah, if you're looking for just general internet law, Air Goldman's the place to go. Mm-hmm. And then the FTC is very good because clearly they're much more activist this term, and it'll be very interesting to watch them over the next couple of years because the Democrats have a 3-2 majority. All three Democrats are very progressive and assertive, uh, consumer, competitive, anti, you know, antitrust in favor of broader antitrust interpretation. So the legal area is going to heat up and it's going to affect us all. So I think it's worth paying attention to. Absolutely. And not that that was a particularly negative story, but we do like to end on a positive note, uh, which <laughs> despite my going... internal inclinations to just sort of not, but right. I'll go with it. So we do want to wish Greg a really uh, happy 4th of July weekend and wish all of you guys a happy 4th of July weekend. Happy Canada day. I think to our, Canadian listeners, uh, which is a little bit uh, more of a last week story, but just seems like there's a lot more to celebrate uh, this year. And and we hope that you guys all have a really happy weekend uh, spent with friends, family, uh, maybe even get outdoors if the weather is okay in your neck of the woods. So um, that's what I will, I will end on friends, that happy family note. And, friends, family, and bike riding. So we're look, look, and, and it looks like good weather. So, yeah. All right. Great. Well, we hope it's nice where, wherever you are and uh, have a terrific weekend. And Greg, Greg will be back with the, we'll have the th- full three Amigo squad uh, back next Friday. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.